Good morning. Welcome. Um, my name is Lynn Jones. I'm Josh Jones. We're both executive pastors at Oxford Vineyard Church. We're super excited to share with you this morning. We're a little bummed because we had a pretty awesome weekend planned for you guys. We were going to have a guest worship leader. We were going to have a worship circle on Sunday morning for our service. Um, and it's a little sad that we don't get to do that with you guys. Um, however, we hope to reschedule it for later this summer or the fall. So we'll be able to do that still with you. Um, we will still talk about worship this morning, though. Um, it's Palm Sunday, so we, we really just want to press into celebration. We want to press into worship, what it looks like to rejoice, and what Jesus thinks about it. Yeah, and I'm so excited to do this message with Lynn, my wife, this morning. And like Lynn said, we're going to talk about worship this morning, and we're going to dive in on that. And um, But we're also going to take a little bit of time, sometime, to just read through the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. But before we dive in, let's just pray. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we're able to meet together and worship you in our homes, our families, our friends. God, we just ask that you'd come and encounter us this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us focus our hearts on Jesus this morning. Prepare the way for him to come in and meet us where we are. Change our attitudes, change mindsets. Fill us up, even right now, wherever we are, to overflowing. That celebration would burst forth from us. We would enter into your courts with praise and thanksgiving and worship to our King. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're just talking about Palm Sunday this morning, because it is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday begins... Um, what's commonly known as Holy Week, um, the week leading up to, to Easter Sunday, next Sunday. Um, it's the day that we remember Jesus coming in, riding in as Savior and King into Jerusalem on a, on a colt of a donkey. Many of us have probably been to or witnessed some sort of um, celebration, some kind of pig parade or something like that. So kind of think about that in your minds as we read this story. Um, that Sunday, that Palm Sunday, first Palm Sunday, was springtime Sunday, much like today. Beautiful. In the, in the year 30 AD, or sometime around the th year 30 AD, and the holy city of Jerusalem was actually crowded with pilgrims, not just Israelites, not just the Jews, but people from all over the world were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate um, this festival, and this week of, of Passover celebration. Jesus had spent many months, you know, Throughout his ministry, going from town to town to villages in Israel, preaching about the kingdom of God, healing the sick, wherever he went, doing signs and wonders. And now the time had come for him to come in and claim his title as the Messiah. So what does that word mean, even? It's Messiah. What does that come from? It comes from a Hebrew word, meaning the anointed one. In the Old Testament, important people, kings, priests, were anointed with oil. And it was a sign of their office, their position, their authority. And for hundreds of years, the Jews had this expectation that God was going to bring this special anointed one who would be this, this king for them. And kind of like their favorite king, King David, and their savior, Moses, who brought them out of Egypt, out of captivity. There was this promised king coming, this Messiah coming in. So they're waiting an expectation for this king. In the Greek, the original language of the New Testament Christos, Christ, Christos, 
means anointed one, and that's where the word Christ comes from, Savior that God had promised the Jewish people. In Jesus' ministry for the past three years, he had, he had collected disciples, followers, but he had kind of stayed away from using the term Messiah, calling himself, claiming to be the Messiah. He stayed away from that for those three years, but, but now he's actually accepting this title. He's, he's, he's coming in, writing it as the Messiah. Now you have to get understand that when the king, when the when the Jews had this expectation of this king coming, they they're thinking military leader, right? They're thinking someone who's going to come in and overthrow the Romans, who's going to bring the fullness of the glory of Israel back. And so this is what's in their mind, and they're expecting him to be a political leader instead of a spiritual leader. But Jesus knew his mission; he knew what he was sent to do, and and he knew that it was coming to an end. That this week would be the week where he would go through these things. We've been talking about. Um, this this victorious series going through the tests of Christ that prepare him for the cross and and Jesus knew what was happening here he knew what was, he was going into and so let's just read this account you can find the account of this story in each of the four gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John we're going to read from Matthew and John this morning so go ahead and turn to Ma- to Matthew the first gospel in the New Testament chapter twenty one verse one is where we're going to start at I'm reading from the Passion translation one of my favorites. You can follow along with me. So verse 1. Now as they were approaching Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, they arrived at the place of the stables near the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead, saying, As soon as you enter the village, you'll find a donkey tethered along with her young colt. Untie them both and bring them to me. And if anyone stops you and asks, What are you doing? Just tell them the Lord of all needs them, and they'll let you take them. All of this happened to fulfill prophecies in the Old Testament, actually, in Zechariah and Isaiah and other prophets. God actually told them hundreds of years before exactly the way that this story would go down, almost word for word, exactly how it was going to go down. And, and Jesus tells them that that's going to happen. And then they, they experienced very much what he said. In Matthew 21, verse 6, let's pick up here. So the two disciples went out ahead and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and her colt to him and placed their cloaks and prayer shawls on the colt, and Jesus rode on it. Then an exceptionally large crowd gathered and carpeted the road before him with their cloaks and prayer shawls. Others cut down branches from trees to spread in his path. Jesus rode in the center of the procession, crowds going before him and crowds coming behind him, and they all shouted, Hosanna, bring the victory, Lord, son of David. He comes in with blessings of being sent from the Lord Yahweh. We celebrate with praises to God in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. The people went went wild with excitement. The entire city was thrown into an uproar. So just think about this. Like, what a sight to see. Jesus was riding this this colt of a donkey into the town of Jerusalem, the biggest city in Israel. A large crowd's gathering. They laid these palm branches, their cloaks on the road. They're giving Jesus a royal treatment, right? Sign of victory. Hundreds of people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So just a side note, um, before all this quarantine, self-isolation went down, we bought a whole bunch of palm branches to use this Sunday in our service. But to do through these circumstances, obviously we won't be there to use them. But if you want, just text John Richter and he can drive by your house and give you some of those palm leaves. And uh, you can celebrate on your own with them. So just close your eyes and think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem again. 
So only a king and a conqueror would be greeted in this way, right? The people wanted Jesus to be their king. Even some of his disciples were like, Jesus, are you now going to step in? Are you now going to take the throne? So this is on their minds. This is in their hearts. Most of the people didn't understand what kind of king Jesus was going to be. They didn't understand what he came for, what he came to do. They expected their Messiah to be a great political leader, a military leader who would free them from tyranny, from Roman, from the Roman Empire. Again, in those days, the Roman strongholds were worldwide domination. The Romans set standards for parades and celebrations. Their very word triumph, or the Latin word triumphus, ex exudes the true meaning of someone being triumphant or victorious. The Roman triumphus was a ritual procession that was the highest public honor that could be given Upon a, you know, bestowed upon a victorious general in ancient Rome. The ceremony would begin with a procession just like this, along the streets, adorned with garlands and lined with people shouting. But in the kingdom of God, it's not of this world, right? It's not the same. Though it, it kind of looked the same in this moment, it was totally different. It's a spiritual kingdom, and Jesus wasn't freeing people from Rome. He was doing much more than that. He was freeing them from spiritual slavery and oppression, from sin, and from the, its consequences, from the consequences of sin, and ultimately from death itself. So let's reread this account again, except this time from the Gospel of John, because though it's very similar, there's some important things that John has in his story that Matthew doesn't have in, in his account. And so let's look at John chapter 12, and we're actually going to start in verse 12, and we'll skip around here a bit for the sake of time. I'm reading this time from the Amplified Translation. So John 12, verse 12. The next day, when the large crowd who had come to the Passover feast heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and homage to him as king and went out to meet him. They began shouting and kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed, celebrated, praised is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Let's move down to verse 17. The people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, when he raised him from the dead, continued to tell others about him. For this reason, the crowd went to meet him, because they heard that he had performed this miraculous sign. So Jesus, you know, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Not too many people raise people from the dead, you know? And so when you hear about this, you know something special happened. This is actually a sign that the Messiah is coming, that he raised somebody from the dead. And so they're going out to look for him. They're expecting this thing. And the Pharisees... In verse 19, you know, they come and they, they're arguing and saying to one another, you see, our efforts are futile. They're trying to sabotage Jesus, right? And they're, they're grumbling amongst themselves. Our efforts are futile. Look, the whole world has gone running to go after him, to go find him, to go see Jesus. In verse 20, it says, now there's some Greeks, some Gentiles, among those who are going up to worship at the feast. They're in town for the, for the Passover, and they came to his disciple Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, with a request saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to meet with Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and exalted. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Just one grain, never more. But if it dies, it produces much more grain and yields a harvest. So Jesus is talking about his own death here. He's talking about dying. And, and, and because of his death, there's going to be an exponential release of eternal life. And that's the only way it can happen, is through his own death. So he's telling them this. It says, if that grain dies, it produces much grain and yields a harvest. 
The one who loves his life eventually loses it through death. But the one who hates his life in this world is and is conquering with pleasing God, that's concerned with pleasing God, will keep it for eternal. If anyone serves me, he must continually to faithfully follow me without hesitation, holding steadfastly to me, conforming to my example and living, and if need be suffering or perhaps dying because of the faith in me. Wherever I am in heaven's glory, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27, Now my soul is troubled and deeply distressed. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour of trial and agony. But it's for this very purpose that I've come. This hour, this time and place. Rather, I will say, Father, glorify and honor and extol your own name. Now look at this in verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd of people who stood nearby heard the voice and some said it thundered. Others said an angel spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. So let's think about this. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? He's going and he's getting baptized and the Father speaks audibly from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? But this time the Father again speaks audibly at the end of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus says, it's not for my identity, it's not for my sake, it's actually for you. For the people of the world, the Gentiles, not even the Israelites, the Greeks, so that they would understand that, that he is the Son of God. It's incredible. Let's continue in verse 31. Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. The sentence is being passed. Now the ruler of this world, Satan, is being cast down. When I'm lifted up from heaven, or when I'm lifted up from earth on the cross, I'll draw all people to myself, Gentiles as well as Jews. He said this to indicate what kind of death by which he was to die. At this the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How then can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you, only for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, and keep on living by it, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. He is drifting aimlessly. While you have the light, believe and trust the light. Have faith in it. Hold on to it. Rely on it. So that you may become sons of light, being filled with light as followers of God. Even though Jesus had done so many signs, miracles, wonders, fulfilled prophecies, even in their midst, the Pharisees and many of the people of Israel still rejected him. Jesus knew this would happen. The Pharisees tried to silence the followers of Jesus from celebrating. They tried to stop them from praising Jesus. In fact, in the same story in the Gospel of Luke, you don't need to turn there, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus responded, Listen to me. If my followers were silent, the very stones would break forth with praises. The very earth would cry out for Jesus. When Jesus caught sight of the city, that's when he's riding in on the donkey, he burst into tears with uncontrollable weeping over Jerusalem, saying, Only if you would recognize that this day peace is within your reach, but you cannot see it. Back to John 12, jumping down verse 44. Jesus loudly declared, The one who believes and trusts in me does not believe only in me, but also believes in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes and trusts in me as Savior, all those who anchor their hope in me, to me, and rely on the truth of my message, will not only continue, will not continue to live in darkness, 
If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge and condemn the world, but only to save the world. Jesus goes on after that to say that he's come to save the world. The Father loves the world and does not reject it, but has sent Jesus, his Son, the very Word made flesh, his Word, the Father's Word made flesh, to bring eternal life to every person. If a person rejects Jesus, he doesn't judge them, but they judge themselves by having rejected the Father's Word and rejecting eternal life. There are two kinds of people who are in the procession that day. Those who are rejecting Jesus and his words and those who are worshiping God and celebrating Jesus' entry. Even if they only had a tiny understanding of who Jesus was, even if it was a little bit off, they were worshiping God about We, on the other hand, have seen Jesus as he truly is. We know him. We have not rejected him or his words. We have anchored our hope into him, anchored our hope in him. We declare him our king. He is our king. And so we rejoice with gladness and hearts um, full of praise because we know who Jesus is. Before we move on, and Lynn, Lynn talks about worship some more, I just want to invite anybody who's watching this who maybe has never entered into a relationship with Jesus. You know, maybe you've, maybe this is all new to you, or maybe you have heard this before, but for one reason or another, you just you rejected it. You rejected the words, or you just didn't want to accept it. And there's no shame here. We just want to invite you to come this morning and just know Jesus. So just pray with me, you know, right now. I want you to invite you to pray with me and invite God to show you the reality, the truth of who Jesus is and what would it be like if you knew him in your life. So, God, I ask you right now, and you can repeat after me wherever you're at. God, I ask you that you would show me Jesus as he truly is. I want to know you for real. God, I give you my heart and my soul. Jesus, I declare right now, you are my king. I want to know you as my king. I give you my life, every part of me. I invite you to come and make your home inside me. I want to be born again. I want to become a new creation. Fill me right now with your spirit. Wash me clean and change any old ways of thinking. Set me free from fear and lies and darkness and depression and anything that's held me back. Awesome. So Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, is I think a paradigm, a model for why we as Christians should celebrate today. We get to partner with the God of the universe, which is pretty cool. We get to have a friendship with the one who thought up the earth and the one who has given us eternal life. And so that alone is reasons for celebration. So we get to celebrate and we get to rejoice. When a Christian thinks about all that God is and all that he's done, we rejoice. We rejoice because God has forgiven our sins. We rejoice because God has sent his son into the world to save everyone who puts their trust in him. We rejoice because Jesus Christ not only died, but was raised again from the dead. We rejoice because Christ ascended into heaven. And we rejoice because God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we rejoice because Jesus is coming again, and he's going to renew all of creation, wiping every tear from our eyes, destroying death, healing every illness, bringing justice, and changing our bodies to be like his resurrected body. So really, 
we have so many things to celebrate, so many things to rejoice. And when we get a glimpse of heaven, um, when we see that, when we taste that, it should be our natural response. It should be a natural overflow to rejoice and to celebrate. Um, another reason that we rejoice is because Jesus has brought good news. And um, the, world, the word gospel means good news. The good news is that the Father loves us so much that he sent Jesus to prove it to us. Good news is that God doesn't leave this planet to fend for itself, but he entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, showing us the way life could be lived. He died a sacrificial death for our sins, but death couldn't hold him. The good news is that Jesus, he wins, and Christ has risen. Death was defeated, and a new world, God's perfect world, is breaking into this world. Um, so this good news is really the best news. Um, it's the best news ever, and when we experience the joy that comes with that, it's a natural overflow to praise and to celebrate and to rejoice. Um, so when we celebrate and rejoice, the easiest, most natural response is worship. And John and Carol Wimber, who are the founders of the Vineyard Movement, have laid out five basic phases of worship that I think might help us um, in this season to experience God in a fresh way. So I'll describe these phases as they apply to corporate worship, but also these very well apply to our private times with God and worshiping Him alone in our homes. So the first phase is the call to worship. So this is an invitation to worship, and it sets the tone for the gathering of people. Um, this is why we sing songs like, Come, now is the time to worship. We have come. Really, the call to worship is a call to celebrate. And it's a call to celebrate with one another and to focus on the king and what he has done. So that might look like, um, let's say, if we're not in corporate worship setting, just a nudging, right? Or just a feeling like, yeah, hey, I just want to worship Jesus this morning, like, I'm at my house, I'm, I'm, I'm alone, you know, or I'm with my family, and we just want to do this right now, like, it's fucking present. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, that's good. The second phase is engagement. So in worship, we have the opportunity to communion with God, and here we see a deep connection to the Father, and it's where we express our love, we express adoration, praise, intercession, and our compliments to God. As we engage with Him, he is also delighting in us. He is singing and dancing over us. Um, there's also a corporate dynamic involved with engagement, and it's really powerful when a whole room of people is engaging at the same time. There's a lot of power in that. And the enemy loves to bring confusion um, between brothers and sisters in Christ, and he hates when we agree on things with one another. And so part of that power is when we're in agreement together, singing the same truth about God together, singing the same truth about ourselves out loud, declaring it, there's a lot of power in that praise. Um, so engaging God for who he is, for what he's done, but also choosing melody as our weapon in this against darkness. So maybe together as a family, just choosing to engage in that way might just change the atmosphere of the home. Mm -hmm. You know, like Though we can't meet corporately together, that's that that reality is still true probably within our family right yeah and declaring truth together like declaring truth yeah. about god and 
we love to declare truth out loud too. Um, so declaring things over one another is really helpful and it's really powerful. So the third phase is expression. So expression is our hearts being awakened to his presence. This is a physical or emotional overflow, uh, and it's responding to the love of God. So this could be lifting our hands, this could be dancing, this could be bowing down, this could be crying or laughing, and usually um, I tend to see so much freedom happen in expression of worship. And I think a lot of this is just like moving our bodies helps us like connect our head a little bit to our heart and um, expressing our love physically, tangibly breaks things off. Um, and so expressing our love to God is the third phase. The fourth phase is visitation. So we have expressed what's in our heart and our minds and our body. And now it's time to wait and wait for God to respond. Stop talking and wait for him to speak and to move. John and Carol phrase it like this. This visitation is a byproduct of worship. We don't worship in order to gain his presence. He is worthy to be worshipped whether or not he visits us. But God dwells in the praises of his people, so we should always come to worship prepared for an audience with the king. And we should expect the spirit of God to work among us. He moves in different ways, sometimes for salvation, sometimes for deliverances, sometimes for sanctification or healings. God also visits us through the, through the prophetic gifts. So worship is not just a one-way road to heaven. It's not just us singing up, but God loves to come and visit us. He loves to be a part of it, to interact with us. And something that I've been trying to do is just being silent and just taking time every day to wait and it's, it's an amazing way to worship God, is just letting him come and be a part of it. Um, so I've really benefited from just taking time to be silent. The fifth phase of worship is the giving of substance. So ministry is a life of giving. And we're all called to ministry, whether it's our full-time job or not. We're all called to um, minister. And ministry is a life of giving. So God... Um, should have the ownership of everything. And when we give God control, he can multiply and bless what we have given. And whether it's time, money, hospitality, or physical possessions, we're called to worship God through giving. And sowing into these things, growing them, might look like giving it away. Holding loose to these things and these substances, but firm to God's promises. Um, and he's praised through our giving. He loves when we offer things up to him and we worship him in that way. So with all of these things, just keep in mind that these phases are just examples, ways of phrasing um, how we can worship and what it looks like to worship. But the end goal is really intimacy with God through all of those things. Um, intimacy meaning belonging to or revealing one's deepest nature to another, and in this case God. And it's marked by close association, presence, and contact. So as we experience these, these phases of worship, we experience intimacy with God. And that's the highest and most fulfilling call that we can have and we can know. That's awesome, man. That's so good. And uh, just, I love those phases that you're talking about. And the more I think about it, almost every time that you lead us in worship on Sunday morning or wherever, wherever we are, 
we're naturally just going through those phases, whether we think about it or not. It's just part of the worship culture that you've created that, that we just naturally enter, the natural overflow of who we are and as we worship. We, we touch each part of those things. It's really cool. And I loved um, also how you talked about the joy that comes, you know, from experiencing, knowing who God is, experiencing the good news, the joy that causes us to worship and praise. It's so good. I want to be apprehended by this joy. Like I want, That's something that I'm personally asking God in this season. Apprehend me with your joy, God. Mm-hmm. Take this time, because you know, more often than not, more than I like to admit, I'm not apprehended by the joy that, that comes from this. And, and so I just wanted, I want him to focus in on that for me for during this time and be apprehended by the truth, the joy of who Jesus is as our king more and more every day. I love that fourth phrase, that fourth phase, that, that visitation. And that's happened so many times on Sunday mornings when we're together. And, and I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of believers, maybe they don't meet weekly to worship together. Maybe Sunday is their only morning that they they join corporately to worship or even enter into worship in that way. And I think in this season specifically, while we're at home, the Lord wants to visit us in our houses, he wants to visit us as a family and, and make this thing not just a Sunday morning experience, yeah. but a daily part of our lives and become a habitation where he's dwelling within us. We're, we're aware of it. Mm-hmm. So cool. So, hey, we're going to wrap up in a minute here and transition into a time of ministry over a Zoom call. And so what we're going to do is that Zoom meeting, we're going to have a link on our website, on our Facebook page. Before we end, I just felt like we needed to address this current circumstance a little bit more, the coronavirus, for just a moment. So, you know, after the the Gospels and after the Book of Acts, there's a lot of epistles. Paul's writing to churches all over um, Asia Minor and Hebrews and Rome and Jews in Rome, and just just exhorting them, lifting them up, encouraging them. You know, he has a really interesting way of describing his frequent moods in his letters. Like, he'll say how he's feeling throughout his letters, at the beginning, at the end, throughout. He's just really, like, honest about how he's feeling. And In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's pretty interesting, being being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Like, how, how do you feel that way? Have you ever felt that way? I think I've felt that way, especially recently. Maybe you're going through a really hard time. Maybe your heart is aching over something. Maybe you're concerned for a loved one, especially with this virus going around. Maybe there's uncertainty in your future about jobs or just financial um, stability. You know? These are real things, and we don't need to give in to fear, but but. But feeling fear is okay. That's just, you don't need to shy away. You don't need to shut that down. But let's go to Jesus in this time. Like We can feel sorrowful. It's okay. But we don't want that to steal our joy. Mm-hmm. And so Paul's saying this. And I just want to encourage you to stay anchored to Jesus. Despite our circumstances, your joy doesn't have to be stolen. Actually, one of my favorite authors, maybe one of yours too, J.R.R. Tolkien, describes this kind of joy that can't be stolen in the book Lord of the Rings. In the second book, actually, in the Two Towers, the hero, Frodo, is with his buddy Sam, and they're, they're already in the middle of Mordor, and, and he's listening to his, his friend Sam, and Sam's encouraging him. He's speaking about stories that would forever be told about their adventure here, forever be told about their mission of going in to destroy the ring that they're going to be sung about for hundreds of years later. And, and here's what we read 
Then Frodo laughed, a long, clear laugh from his heart. Such a sound had not been heard in those places since Sauron came to Middle-earth. To Sam, suddenly it seemed as if all the stones were listening, and the tall rocks leaning over them. But Frodo did not heed them. He laughed again. So think about this. Like Frodo and Sam, they're in the sanctuary of the enemy. They're, they're in the valley of the shadow of death, basically. And they're weighed down by the dark power of the ring that they're carrying. And as Frodo listens to his friend, he laughs. And he rose and he continues his mission in the face of powerful evil. This is the joy that every born-again believer, in spite of anything that's happening, in spite of everything that could happen, unquenchable joy, joy that can't be stolen. When Jesus entered in Jerusalem, the people, they had an expectation, you know, that Jesus was coming as a triumphant king and that Jesus would overthrow the Romans then and there. And Jesus came as the victorious king, but his kingdom was of a different kind, like we talked about. Rather than defeat the Romans in an instant, you know, he gave his life so that he could give everlasting life and joy on the inside to every one of us. I think in this season, we just want Jesus to snap his fingers and end the virus in an instant. And I believe that he could totally do that. And I'm actually asking him to do that because we don't like this thing. We want it to end. But at the same time, I know that what the enemy is using for evil, Jesus is turning around for our good. So his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. We don't always understand it the way that it's working. It's most powerful when it's working from the inside out. So I just want to challenge you to take time to press into God during this season. Don't just veg out and watch as many shows as you can. Don't just play games and read books or go for walks. Do all those things too. They're all great things. But also intentionally get before the Lord. Get together as a family. Press into all that Jesus has for you in this season. I believe he wants us to come out of this thing on the other side as warrior lovers of him. Victoriously walking in the fullness of our relationship with him walking in our identity and destiny as sons and daughters. So just before we leave, before we jump on that Zoom call, I just want to declare Ephesians 3.20 over, 3.20-21 over you as we end here. So God is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks, guys.